So if I allow my supernatural bias to say, oh, it's always a supernatural explanation, it's a miracle, and therefore I never have to do science to figure out weather patterns and things that are causing rain, then I'm going to fall into a ditch on the side of falling into the supernatural. But if I have a naturalistic bias that says, no, there's a natural explanation for everything, it can't be a God, then I'm possibly going to miss things that are supernatural and fall into a naturalistic ditch on the other side of the road. I think that if we are unbiased, or I guess we can never really be unbiased. We have our bias, but if we hold our bias in check in a sense of when we approach something new and says, hey, there may be a natural explanation, there may be a supernatural explanation, let's see where the evidence points. And then we actually have both options on the table when evaluating the evidence. I think that's a better approach to then we can follow the evidence where it leads. All right, well, this is part three, talking through the book by Armin Navabi, Why There Is No God, looking at each of his chapters and trying to kind of think through his critiques of different arguments for Christianity, for the existence of God, and maybe where he gets things right, where he gets things wrong, and maybe where Christians need to change the way in which we present our arguments. And so this is chapter three, part three, uh, discussing his chapter. Let me pull up the title of the chapter here. Chapter three, some unexplained events are miraculous, and these miracles prove the existence of God. And so that is going to be the conversation today. My name is Ryan Pauly, and this is Think Well, the show that's geared to train you to think well about the Christian faith and about culture so that you can engage the culture well. And so hopefully in a conversation like today, to be able to kind of think through different strategies, kind of see where Christians maybe use bad arguments, how we can make our arguments stronger, and then often, you know, at least get some thoughts or, or hear someone's perspective that's coming from the atheist camp um, and, and then how we can use that information uh, to, to kind of shape the way in which we engage on these sort of issues. And so the book uh, that we are describing, uh, let me pull it up here on the screen so you all can see it. It is this one, Why There Is No God, Simple Responses to 20 Common Arguments for the Existence of God by Armin Navabi. He is the founder and president of Atheist Republic, former Muslim, now an atheist. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today, as well as after kind of my comments as I work through this chapter on miracles and how miracles can be used. Uh, in showing that God does exist, I will be taking your questions, uh, whether they're uh, on this topic or other apologetic culture, worldview, ethical questions. I would love to take those. So if you're watching on Instagram or on YouTube, uh, you can put those in the live chat and I'll do my best to get to them. If you want to talk about it, you can head on over to YouTube uh, if you're not there already. And I put a link in the live chat uh, that you can click on and you can join the show and have a conversation uh, to me, you can kind of call in, so to speak. So um, that is uh, what we're going to do after uh, kind of these initial comments and, and and talking through this chapter. And so again, this is this is part three. Uh, part two looked at the first chapter on the fine tuning argument. Uh, does design or or things that we see in the universe uh, and complexity point to there being a designer? And then the second one last week was how scripture uh, does God's existence is God's existence is God's existence <laughs> proven by scripture. And so that's what we've looked at so far. And now, so kind of jumping into his chapter uh, on this idea of these unexplained events are miraculous uh, and therefore prove the existence of God. 
He defines a miracle, uh, according to the Collins English Dictionary, as an event that is contrary to the established laws of nature and attributed to a supernatural cause. And so that's kind of what he is referring to when he talks about do miracles point to God is this thing that that goes against the laws of nature and are attributed to a supernatural cause. Now, not too long ago, I did a YouTube conversation, an interview with Dr. Um, Dr. Howe, uh, Richard Howe, on our miracles or is science, does science prove miracles wrong? And he talks about miracles being defined as kind of this supernatural sort of event that, that points to uh, uh, the kind of or, or the credibility of a messenger. And what we see from a theological perspective is that miracles are often um following prophets, Jesus, the apostles, kind of these new messengers who come with this new message from God. And then the question is, well, well, who are you and why should I be listening to you? And then the person would do a miracle, whether it's the prophets or Jesus or others, right? And so we see this example in, in Jesus where he says, you know, your sins are forgiven to the paralytic. And they're like, who are you to forgive sins? And his response is, so you may know that I have the power to forgive sins, stand up and walk. And the paralytic rises up and walks. And so it's this confirmation of sort of this divine messenger. If God is doing a divine intervention, doing a miracle, then um, it's a confirming the the message that the person then is sharing. So that's more kind of a from a theological perspective that we get more into in that conversation on YouTube. Now, I, this understanding here from the Collins English Dictionary, I think is helpful. Now, it's hard, though, when it says it's contrary to the established laws of nature. Um, this can be taken in a few different ways. Uh, and what I would say is this is, Yes, the normal way in which the laws of nature function, this is not going to happen. Um, and so this is when a, an external agent is able to, in a sense, overpower the laws of nature, right? So so God overpowering the laws of nature is like, yes, dead hearts normally stay dead. They don't start beating again after being dead for a while. But God being a powerful being can restart a dead heart and rise someone from the dead. Or normally if you get on water, you're going to sink, you're going to drown. But God, who is the one, the creator of that water can do something to make that surface tension strong enough to allow Jesus to walk on it. And so these sort of things that we take, that we see take place. Normally blind eyes don't just regain sight or, or lame hands don't don't just um, start working again. But God, who is more powerful, who has created those things, can restructure and, and heal, bring healing to that. And so in that sense, it is contrary to the laws of nature. They don't normally happen this way. Dead people normally stay dead. And this would be in a divine intervention to cause something that normally doesn't pl- take place to take place. And so in one sense, now I'm not claiming this is a miracle, but to kind of wrap your mind around this a little bit, I think it's helpful to think of this in the sense of like uh, airplanes flying or something like that. Like generally speaking, like things fall. Gravity causes things to fall, but we have learned to overpower gravity or the laws of nature, and we can get things to suspend up in the air. Uh, And so we have figured out how to use laws of nature and aerodynamics and whatnot to overpower gravity so it doesn't cause the plane just to fall. And so here's where intelligent agents are able to kind of overpower in a sense and cause something that naturally doesn't take place to take place. Now, again, the airplane analogy is slightly different because there's other laws of nature we're using, but hopefully you kind of get that idea is we're not going against gravity or in a sense of contrary, we're not overthrowing gravity or something like that. It just is a powerful being, being able to do something that naturally does not take place. Now, he goes on in the next part of this chapter and he says, 
A person surviving a disease believed to be a terminal, uh, he says, uh, the definition here, let me actually take a step back. He says, this definition separates true miracles from events that are simply statistically unlikely. And I think this is a really good point that he makes. These later events are noteworthy because of their rarity, but they exist within natural laws. For example, a person surviving a disease believed to be terminal only shows that the disease may not fully be understood or that the prognosis was not accurate. Now, here's what's interesting. And I, and I want to stop and I make, I want to make, I think a really important point uh, here at this moment. There are times where Christians claim something is a miracle when it is just simply unlikely, right? It's like, I won the lottery. It's a miracle. Well, it's unlikely that you win the lottery, but winners of the lottery do take place, right? There are people that win and that's not necessarily miraculous. I don't think there's any way just because it is very <coughs> statistically unlikely it does not prove then that God intervened in a supernatural way to cause the numbers to line up right so that you would win the lottery. And so I think there's times where we pull into a, a store and we find a parking place. This is a common kind of silly example of like, it's a miracle. I got a parking space. It's like, yeah, maybe you normally don't find one that close. But again, there's no way to prove this is sort of this divine intervention. And so often as Christians, we need to be careful when, when using this sort of miraculous language with people who don't believe in God, like this, an atheist, and recognize what they're going to hear when we talk about this kind of stuff. If we're attributing miraculous, God did something miraculous, and it simply is just a t statistical, unlikely thing to take place— well, then it kind of seems to kind of discredit or um, maybe in a really harsh sense, like kind of cry wolf. And then a real miracle does take place when we've called all these things over here, miracles. And it's like, well, that's just unlikely. You got lucky. There's no way to prove that's God. Then all of a sudden this gets called a miracle. Sometimes that just gets lumped in. I think this is an example here. The second thing, though, is I want to address this. And I think Christians do this in a different way. But notice in the second paragraph, he says, if a person survives a disease believed to be terminal only shows that the disease may not be fully understood or that the prognosis was not accurate. And here I think is a really interesting insight. This is why worldview is so important. Because, and I address this in my long interview on miracles and, and science behind miracles, is if God does not exist, then miracles by definition are impossible. They don't happen. There is no divine intervention into this world if there is no God. And so if someone comes from a secular worldview that says there is no God, then clearly if someone survives what was believed to be a terminal disease and then they don't die from it, then that clearly is what our man is talking about here of yeah, then we just didn't understand what was wrong with them or the prognosis was not accurate. We misdiagnosed them or we just don't understand this disease. That's that's easily the answer. Now, for Christians to, to hear that, we go, well, that's crazy. How can you do that? Well, Christians, we often do this too. And here's, I think, a helpful point is when we have strong beliefs and convictions about one thing, then it often causes us to look at other stuff in a different way. So there are Christians that have strong convictions about young earth creationism, and that's going to cause them to dismiss things like radiometric dating and carbon dating and, and any sort of fossil claimed to be millions or billions of years old. It's like, no, that can't be possible because the earth is only 6,000 years old. Right? If we have strong convictions as Christians that Jesus rose from the dead, then any sort of scientific 
discovery or scientific document saying dead people stay dead. They don't come back from the dead. We're going to go, well, you got that wrong because here's an example of someone who did. You see, I'm reading this book on, on doubt, or I just finished this book on doubt for my classes. And it talked about how doubt is only possible because of knowledge. And, and, and one of the points that he was making, and this is a Leslie Newbigin in the book, Proper Confidence. One of the points that he was making is that we often doubt X because of a strong belief in Y. I have a strong belief that something is true. And therefore, when you bring uh, something that is contrary to my belief, I instantly am going to start doubting it. And it's not, doubt is not showing that there is no knowledge. It's because of the knowledge I have that X is true. It's going to cause me to doubt Y, if that makes sense. So I have strong belief that God exists. It's going to make me doubt any claims that God doesn't exist. Or I have strong belief that Jesus rose from the dead. It's going to make me doubt any claim that miracles are impossible. And so we often do this is that the beliefs that we hold cause us to look skeptical or create a different scenario or a different explanation for beliefs that are contrary to the things that we hold closely. And so here, I think this is an example of where our man is saying, look, because he is committed to naturalism, that there's a natural explanation for everything. There is no God. Therefore, someone surviving a terminal disease is not evidence for God. It just means that we didn't understand it. I think just like Christians, we have strong beliefs about scripture and any evidence presented against it. So we have a strong belief that scripture is without error and without contradiction. And someone presents a, an apparent contradiction in scripture, what we kind of talked a little bit about last week uh, and or in the last video. And it's like, well, there must be an explanation because there can't be contradictions. <laughs> right. And so this is what I just want you to see is that Christians, we do this too. Atheists, you do this because of a strong worldview commitment it's going to cause us to look at things differently. And so this is why I think it's important to not simply just present miracles as evidence. And then the person goes, well, we probably just misdiagnosed it. They got lucky or we don't understand the disease fully. And you go, but clearly this is evidence that, that there's a God is a miracle. And it's like, no, he's don't understand it. Recognize the starting point, recognize the reason why these claims are being made. And we need to maybe take a step back from that piece of evidence for a second and challenge basic worldview assumptions. The atheist challenging the Christian assumptions and Christians challenging atheist assumptions. And, and so I think this is helpful when we kind of approach this big topic. Now, with that, um, he makes a few points like he does in each chapter to kind of address these different issues. And the first one is this. He goes, an unknown cause is not the same as divine intervention. Um, that's true. Right. And here he goes back to the same example that he gave in chapter one that we talked about with the design argument. He says uh, there's a lot of perceived miracles. Let's examine belief in the thunder gods with certain cultures. Throughout history, there have been many thunder gods spread out across multiple continents and civilizations. In most cases, the god created thunderstorms directly through his actions, whether it's meant Zeus was throwing down lightning bolts or beating uh, the thunderbird's wings. Today, the scientific causes of thunder are well known. Such myths seem absurd and antiquated. At the time, though, believers likely felt that thunder was miraculous, even requiring such divine explanation. So this is true. In the past... People used miraculous explanations to explain things that we now realize are not miraculous. We have a scientific explanation for why there's thunder. There's no God like Zeus throwing down lightning bolts. 
He goes on to say this, this phenomenon of ascribing supernatural causes to mysterious events is a case of argument from ignorance. This is a fallacy where a person claims that a statement is true simply because there's no evidence to the contrary, even when there is also total lack of supporting evidence. And so here's what we do have to be careful of, that we're not just saying, I don't understand this, therefore God, right? Or there's no evidence to the contrary, therefore God. And so we need to make sure, just as we talked about in part one of this series, that if us as Christians were drawing a conclusion, we actually have to have arguments and reasons that support the conclusion that we're drawing. We can't say, well, you haven't proved it false, therefore it's true. That's a fallacy. But you also can't say it's there. It's true just because uh, we haven't found anything else. Um, we actually have to have solid evidence for it. But here's what we also have to be careful not to do and what I see happening here in this chapter. To say throughout history, we have attributed miraculous things to simply things that were unknown is true. But to then say, now he doesn't say this directly, but then to say, therefore, the same is probably happening now, I think is, could be, you know, considered a, a hasty generalization. To say we did this in the past, therefore, this is how all miracles can be explained, doesn't take into account that other miracle stories actually have different amounts of evidence to support them. We're going to look at some of these here in a little bit. He then says uh, to another problem with describing supernatural causes to mysterious events is that they are unfalsifiable, meaning they cannot be disproven. Unfalsifiable claims hold no merit without evidence. Again, I think this is kind of come back, comes back to that point. We need evidence. We need to have evidence that is supporting a conclusion that we come up with rather than making these sort of unfalsifiable claims. Here he kind of goes on. He says, one person might ascribe a miracle to God while someone else claims that space aliens are responsible. Without evidence to back up their claims, these explanations are equally meaningless. Again, we're not just going out there making claims. I think this happened. I think this happened. There needs to be some ways to establish that this is something divine. This is something supernatural. And one way in which some Christians are doing this. So there's different kind of groups of Christians that are studying miracles in different ways. And there's kind of a criteria and, and one of the criteria is that the miracle that takes place has to involve, and we're going to look at two cases of this, has to involve some sort of intercessory prayer where, where the person gets prayed over and then experiences some sort of transformation, where there's this connection to you had some sort of issue that is a documented issue. Uh, doctors and, and different individuals have done studies repeated to show this is an actual long-lasting issue. The person then goes and receives prayer where people pray that God would heal them and then they're healed. And so, and that healing is not just a temporary thing where it's maybe it's just in the moment where the adrenaline takes over and you feel better. And the next day you wake up and your back hurts again, but it's a long lasting change. And, and, and the point in which the change happened was when the prayer took place. Now, if this is what's happening and we're going to look at some examples here in a moment, um, this seems to be different than just claiming one, that God did it. And I think as evidence against, or at least a reason to believe it's not just these space aliens responsible, because number one, there's no evidence for space aliens. But number two is you're claiming or you're asking God to do something. And then when he comes through and does it, there's something different there. Now, again, miracles are not possible if God does not exist. And so I think there's ways, and I'll talk about this, in which we can use a miracle to show God exists. But really, I think a better starting place for a lot of people 
And this is where it just changes, I think, maybe depending on the conversation, the person you're talking to, the better starting place is to establish the fact that God does exist and then miracles become possible. And then you can see if this is a genuine miracle that God did. Now, he then goes on to say uh, in this first section of how just because something is unknown, there's an unknown cause does not mean it's a divine intervention. I agree. He says uh, these accounts can be compelling um, or actually uh, he gave an example here. I I didn't highlight, but I want to address. He says um, time and time again, events that initially may seem miraculous later turn out to have reasonable explanation. For example, near death experiences are often held up as proof of an afterlife. During such an experience, a person may feel as though she is outside of her body looking down on it, or she may experience the feeling of traveling down a dark tunnel towards a light source. Some people report hearing voices of departed loved ones with these disembodied voices, sometimes urging them back away from the light, which some believe may be an afterlife. These accounts can be compelling and for the person experiencing them, very real. However, scientific evidence suggests a biological mechanism behind these responses and the result can be triggered manually by doctors stimulating parts of a person's brain. Now, here's what I think is is interesting. Again, this is where I think that we sometimes, Christians do this too, we hold on to examples or evidence that supports our case (laughs) and kind of are not considering or maybe are not aware of examples or evidence that are contrary to our case. So are there stories, this is right. So miracles can be explained by the, you know, people not understanding and maybe then calling it Zeus. True. But what about these other cases that are more solid? Same thing with near-death experiences here. There's many near-death experiences where people just claim that some person talked to them or the person just said they saw a light. But there's no way you can actually test that. Well, I I meant to grab this before I started. Um, On the bookshelf behind me, well, my headphones are. The Self Does Not Die, Verified Paranormal Phenomena from Near-Death Experiences. Um, Edited by Titus Revis, Ann Dervin, and Rudolf Smith. There it is in the video, if you can see it. This is not simply... Oh, I talked to a loved one and here's what they told me, or, um, I saw light, but this is, is, is are, are examples of I, while being on the operating table, often like brain dead, heart dead, like in cardiac arrest, like they're administering CPR because this person has no pulse, no measurable brain activity. This person reports going to a different room of the hospital. One person goes up onto the roof of the hospital and sees a shoe up there of all different colors. Another person floats up into the vents and sees a coin from 1952, a quarter or something in a vent. Another person uh, reports going into the operating room and, and, and seeing the serial number on top of one of the medical devices in the operating room. And this medical device was like high enough that you'd have to step up on a ladder or a step stool to get on top of to be able to see the serial number on top. The thing, though, is that when they get revived, their heart starts beating again, they come back to life, they report, this is what I saw. And in these instances, they've gone up to the roof and they found the shoe that just matches the description of what the person saw while they were in the operating room. Or they, one person went in the vent and found the coin or another person later climbed up on a stool and saw the serial number on top of the machine. And it actually matched the serial number that the person said to the nurse, the nurse wrote it down when they had woken up. Now, again, if you want to explain this away, you'd have to say this person somehow got into this operating room, climbed up on a ladder 
memorized a serial number, left the hospital, got themselves in some sort of car accident to where they had to be rushed to the hospital, just so happened to get rushed into surgery in that same operating room to the point and close enough to death where they actually experience cardiac arrest, their heart stops, just so they can, when they wake up, tell the nurse, hey, uh, I saw the number on top of this machine and here it is. And then they later check and confirm that number was accurate. Like there's just, in my opinion, there is just way too much that is unlikely about that story that to be faked, that it seems like something is happening. There's others, uh, examples of where the person goes out into the waiting room and hears their family member say something and then tells the doctor when they wake up, oh, I went to the waiting room and I, I heard my my dad say, oh, this might be the last time we get to see him and, and, and share something very specific to someone, not just like, I guess what I just, the example I gave was not very specific because this may be the last time we see him. But like, hey, my dad said, hey, next week when you uh, are doing whatever, you know, did you want to go here and, and eat this? And then they later ask, hey, did you say this during the surgery? And the person was like, yeah, I did say that. And so it's not just simply, I talked to a loved one who passed away. Grandma told me she loved me and there's no way to verify it. There's examples in this book that are verified, checked on examples so this person saw or viewed or experienced something while they were having a near-death experience, and then they confirmed it with other doctors or nurses or family members or other things around the hospital or other different parts. And so this is very different than what he's describing here. And so my question would be, what would he do with these sort of examples? Now, he then says, we can know that you can trigger some of these things by stimulating parts of the brain. Well, sure, again, you can stimulate someone's brain and cause them to do something. But just because I can stimulate your brain to cause you to think something happened cannot be used to dismiss something that you actually did experience. All right, so it's like I can stimulate your brain to make you think you went and hung out with your friend yesterday. Well, I can't use that to dismiss the fact that you actually did go hang out with your friend yesterday. And so, again, we, we can't use these these selective pieces of information. Christians do it too, where we grab a study that we like. It's like, you know, I find a study that says coffee is good for you and I hold on to that and I dismiss all other studies that says that coffee might have some negative effects, right? We, we grab onto studies and examples that we like and we often dismiss the things that we don't like or the things that would cause issues for our case. And we need to be careful not to do that. So look, there's some good examples and maybe we can talk about this more later. There's some really interesting stories in this book of verified paranormal phenomena from near-death experiences, not just simply I talked to a loved one or I saw some light. And so it is true that just because something does not have an immediate explanation or there's an unknown cause is not evidence of divine intervention. But there are times in which there is an unknown cause and what the thing that has taken place points to something else. And so here's the point that I want to make here is how miracles can be used. Think of a murder case, right? If you are a cop and you walk into a, a room and there is a, a dead person there, as Jay Ward Wallace talks about, he's a cold case homicide detective from LA County, um, is that you can die by, you know, accident, by natural causes or by murder. And so those options are all on the table. Um, now, if you then walk into the room and the room is completely empty, no one's in there, just you and a dead body, and then you find eight holes in this person's back, <laughs> the evidence that you find points to the fact that there is an intelligent person that came into that room, committed murder, and then left. What you find there is evidence to point you to someone outside that room that came in and murdered. And imagine then if someone says, look, I, there has to be a murderer. And someone says, well, but maybe not. 
maybe there is an unknown natural reason for how you just get holes in your back and eight of them. It's like, no, this is evidence that they got shot. And so someone had to shoot them. It's like, well, you don't know that. There's an unknown. This is just an unknown cause. It could be a natural explanation for this, right? That would kind of be crazy, right? In the same way or similar way, there's things that we see that are better explained by an intelligent agent from outside that room that came in and did something. And so you could say, well, we can keep searching for a natural explanation. I think then this is naturalism of the gaps. There has to be a natural explanation for everything. We find something that clearly looks like something unique and we say, well, no, there must be a natural explanation. We just don't understand this disease. We just don't understand the human body well enough. Um, maybe one day we'll figure out how you can just naturally get some holes in your back and die. That would be crazy. In the same way, we know a ton about cancer and we know a lot about how cancer works and different diseases and how they function. If you have a long lasting disease and there are no known cases of it just overnight, in a sense, going away, and then it does to then say, well, we just don't understand this disease. When that person had just been prayed over, I think we're missing it. We're allowing our worldview to cause us to come to a conclusion I don't think that we would come to naturally, if that makes sense. And so we have to be careful that, that we don't just say, I don't understand, therefore God. But when we have positive evidence pointing to something unique, when we have design that always points to a designer, when we have evidence pointing to something outside that came in and did something, to then say, nope, you can't use this as evidence of a murderer. We have to figure out a natural explanation for this, I think is is not the best explanation for the things that we see. So when you have verified near-death experiences, not just I talked to someone, but I talked to them or I heard them and here's what they said, and then you check on it and they actually did say those things. This is evidence of something extra going on where I think there that is evidence of a soul, that there is something, a part of you that can leave and have experiences while your physical body is without a heartbeat and brain activity on an operating room table. And so as he closes this section, uh, just because <clears throat> uh, event is uh, not immediately apparent, um, oh great, my Kindle on my computer just crashed. Um, so I think that you get the point there. Um, let me take this uh, opportunity while my computer's restarting. If you have questions, um, whether it's on uh, YouTube or Instagram, uh, post them in the live chat and I'll get to them. If you want to join for a call and a conversation, you can click on the link in YouTube and we can uh, have a little chat. Um, also, if you're listening on podcast or radio after the fact, um, you can join me. I'm trying to do these every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific time, um, you know, with, with little kids and schedules and speaking and traveling and everything. Sometimes uh, things happen and, and I have to reschedule or postpone. Um, but uh, I try to do it every Tuesday, 2 p.m. Pacific time. Um, all right. So the next section here um, is many events are inherently meaningless. And he says, um, you know, there's an evolutionary rationale for superstition is clear. Natural, natural selection will favor strategies that make incorrect casual associations in order to establish those that are essential for survival and reproduction. Um, as emotional human beings, he says, form as emotional human beings who form strong personal ties to one another and may care deeply for others, we cling to falsely perceived patterns, possibly as a way to make sense of both tragedy and success, and to in some way feel like we have some kind of reliable solution in situations where we sense a lack of control. All of these explanations may, uh, uh, all of these, all of this explains why many people are so prone to believe in miracles. So he says, look, there's a lot of events that are actually just meaningless. 
But the issue is, is that we see patterns and we try to make sense of patterns and then we attach a meaning onto that pattern when really it's just a random pattern. And so he says, uh, this point is, hey, sometimes maybe these events actually are, and this section is called, many events are inherently meaningless. It is just pure randomness. But the thing is, we like making sense of stuff. And so we try to make sense of something. And then we say miracle. Again, I think this doesn't quite take into account that there are legitimate patterns that are made sense of. You can make sense. And we do this all the time in science where we study a pattern, we study a phenomenon, and then we can make sense of it. And we attribute a theory or some sort of explanation to it. And so there are patterns that do make sense. And so just because something is made sense of using a miracle to then just dismiss that and say, well, it's just randomness. And it's just your evolutionary explanation where you favor strategies that help make sense. Um, is, is a dismissive thing that doesn't take into account the evidence and the for that pattern. Now, the example that he gives from evolution is, is that, hey, if, if, if you uh, see something or experience something, and the example given is if you're walking through the jungle, right, ancient uh, uh, people are walking through the jungle and they hear a rustling in the bushes, you can say, well, it's probably just the wind, and maybe it is, or you can say it's probably a bear I better or a lion, I better run. Um, and so there is an evolutionary advantage to saying, it's probably a lion because if you assume, oh, it's just the wind and it is a lion, you're dead. If you assume, oh, it's the wind and it is the wind, you're okay. But if you assume, oh, it's a lion and you run, it was just the wind, you're still alive. And so there's a reason to assume like the worst or assume something crazy like it's a lion because, to, because that's what keeps you alive. And so there's this evolutionary advantage um, for superstition, believing something is there that really isn't there. Like believing a lion is in the bushes when it's not. So that's where he says in the quote that I started with, the evolutionary rationale for superstition is clear. Natural selection will favor strategies that make many incorrect causal associations in order to establish those that are essential for survival and reproduction. Now, I have a side point here that I thought was interesting is that he claimed here that evolution will favor strategies that make many incorrect associations. I find that interesting that like the main point I think of making is, is that when we try to ground a lot of truth claims or we ground morality and evolution, evolution does not select for truth and evolution does not select for morally good. Evolution selects for survival. And so if our morality is coming from evolution, then to claim there's any sort of truth in it or that it's based on this kind of moral ethical system of goodness rather than just survival, I think it, 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 we can't do that. Uh, evolution clearly can um, uh, uh, choose based on what is best for survival, not necessarily just what is true. And that's what he kind of points out here. Now, the last thing uh, that I want to address here, and then I will get to what you said there, uh, Phantom X, um, <clears throat> let's see. Oh, I think, uh, yeah, this is, let me, uh, let me actually address Phantom X, what you said here. I think this is good. Um, add a broadcast. If you stop looking because you decide on a miracle, you will never find the naturalistic explanation. That seems like it would limit progress. That can be true, right? But, but here's the question. What I would present is this. There are things that we experience that do have natural explanations. And there are things that we experience that have intelligent explanations. Let's just call it that. And if we allow our bias to cause us to fall to either side of the problem, 
then we're in a problem space, right? So if I allow my supernatural bias to say, oh, it's always a supernatural explanation, it's a miracle, and therefore I never have to do science to figure out weather patterns and things and causing rain, then I'm gonna fall into a ditch on the side of falling into the supernatural. But if I have a naturalistic bias that says, no, there's a natural explanation for everything, it can't be a God, then I'm possibly going to miss things that are supernatural and fall into a naturalistic ditch on the other side of the road. I think that if we are unbiased, or I guess we can never really be unbiased, we have our bias, but if we hold our bias in check in a sense of when we approach something new and says, hey, there may be a natural explanation, there may be a supernatural explanation, let's see where the evidence points. And then we actually have both options on the table when evaluating the evidence. I think that's a better approach to then we can follow the evidence where it leads. And then also have an open mind in a sense where if, if, if there is something, just like in a criminal case where you say, hey, he might be innocent, he might be guilty. Let me follow the evidence where it leads. And then based on the evidence, you go, man, I think he's guilty. And then uh, six months down the road, something new comes out that points to his innocence rather than saying, no, I said he was guilty. Therefore, I stand by that. And you can actually change your mind and say, hey, I think I was wrong. I think he is innocent. That I think is a healthy place to be. And so if we just say, it's a miracle, I'm gonna stop looking, then that would limit progress and I think that is problematic. However, I think if we say it's natural, I don't even have to consider a miracle, I think that also limits our understanding. Rather than science or rather than our, um, <clears throat> our goal should not just be search for a natural explanation about the world, but we should say, hey, I wanna search for what's true about the natural world whether that's a natural explanation or an intelligent explanation. So I think both sides can fall into some problems and we need to have that our, uh, that open mind in a sense where we follow the evidence where it leads. Um, now your next comment here, how do you know when there is an unknown naturalistic explanation and a miracle? It would seem that both appear the same until you find the naturalistic explanation. That's true. And here's where I think, again, kind of what I just actually said about, about being able to change our mind. I think that we have to do the best that we can at following the evidence where it leads and coming to a conclusion based on the knowledge that we have available. And so I think that we should be able to say, look, based on these reasons and all the evidence that we currently have, here's my conviction. Here's my, here's where I land. And then if we later on find evidence that goes contrary, we should be willing to change our mind on that and say, Hey, I was mistaken. But to, but to, Say I, I can't form a belief or I can't have a conviction on something until every possible stone has been overturned, I, I think is is also not right, right? And just like in a criminal trial, it's this person is proved guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, that we have good reason to believe this person's guilty. Maybe we got it wrong and maybe we find something else that changes our mind later, but you can't say, well, I have to search every single possible thing and I have to know every possible thing to know with 100% certainty before I can say, I think this person is guilty, if that makes sense. And so I think that we can look at evidence and if there's good reason to believe this evidence is pointing to a supernatural explanation or an intelligent cause based on how we know the world to function, then I think it's reasonable to say, I think this was a miracle. And hey, later on, if we figure out uh, some explanation for how cancer magically disappears because of something we didn't know about, okay, then maybe those things that I thought were miracles aren't anymore. But I don't think it's unreasonable, if that makes sense. Um, I don't think it's unreasonable to claim this based on what we know at that time. Um, to say, oh, I can't have any conclusion until all evidence comes in, I also think, um, I don't think that's how it should work, if that makes sense. Um, 
Appreciate the comments, Phantom X. Thanks for being here. Um, all right, so let me go to the last section here, and then if there's anything else, uh, I'll address it here after the final section. Improbable events. Oh, and then I'm also going to present a couple cases that I think are very interesting. Improbable events are not proof of the supernatural. And again, I agree with this at the very beginning. Just because something is improbable is not proof. But there is a point where it is so unlikely and actually has little markers pointing to outside intervention that we can say, I think there's an external explanation for this, right? Just like the bullet holes in the back. Uh, it's like, well, it's very unlikely to get eight holes in your back nat by natural causes or by a self-inflicted wound. Um, therefore, you can't prove that just because it's unlikely that it's not murder. It's like, well, no, but th the better explanation is murder. So he says this, many people turn to the supernatural when they witness a highly improbable event and consider it to be a miracle rather than looking for a natural explanation. I think that's true. People do that. Yet an understanding of basic properties of probability laws show that even extremely improbable events happen all the time. That is true. Um, there are extremely unlikely events that happen all the time. But again, the question is, what if something is not just extremely unlikely, but goes contrary to what we know things to function like normally? For example, like, let's just go back to my simple example of the plane flying. We know that gravity pulls stuff down. <laughs> and so if something starts going up in the air, you don't go, well, that's unlikely. You know, it's like, no, there, there's something happening that's causing it to go up in the air because things don't just go up in the air unless there's something causing it to go up in the air, whether it's helium or heat or aerodynamic, whatever, right? That there's something that's causing it to float up because it doesn't do that. You don't just go, well, that's unlikely, but it happens all the time. It's like, no, gravity pulls stuff down. This is how it functions. Therefore, there has to be an explanation of why. Um, he says, <clears throat> and now here, I think this is where his worldview comes through. After witnessing events, he says, with very small probabilities, we might think the laws of nature have been broken an attempt to use supernatural explanations to make sense of observing such events. No matter how unlikely an event is, it doesn't mean that a supernatural explanation would be more likely, especially when you consider the fact that in order for us to accept such an explanation, we have to agree that the scientific models of nature that have consistently and accurately explained and predicted many natural events are completely wrong simply because we have witnessed an unlikely event. Yet close analysis of such miracles have never led to any proof of a supernatural explanation. And in fact, many have proven to be cheap magic tricks, hallucinations, or primitive misunderstandings of natural phenomena. So again, I think um, there, there is cheap magic trick. I think there's fake faith healers out there. I think sometimes there is a primitive misunderstanding of the natural phenomena that we attribute something as miraculous. It's not. I think that maybe there are some hallucinations, but what do you do about cases that are different? What do you do about cases that seem to fall into a different camp? And that's what I want to show you here. So let me pull up <clears throat> a couple of these here for you. And I want to just present this. And I think these are just fascinating. Um, website. All right, here we go. Um, sorry, Instagram, this is going to get cut off for you. Uh, I'm making this for YouTube today. Um, <clears throat> so these uh, cases uh, are in, um, both of these are in on sciencedirect.com. Uh, they're also both published in um, PubMed, which is the, um, let me move this over for you. There you go. The National Library of Medicine, the National Center for Biotechnology Information, PubMed. Um, <clears throat> here's the first one. Uh, a case 
Come on, move over. There we go. Case report of instantaneous resolution of juvenile macular degeneration blindness after proximal intercessory prayer. So let me just read the abstract to you here really quickly. And it looks like that's a little bit too big. So let me make this a little bit smaller uh, so that you can see everything on the screen there. There we go. That should work. An 18-year-old female lost a majority of her central vision over the course of three months in 1959. Now, again, a long time ago, uh, so it's hard to confirm everything here, but uh, this is interesting. Medical records from 1960 indicate visual acu acuitis. I'm going to get all these medical terms wrong, by the way. Uh, of less than 20-40 vision in both eyes, corresponding to legal blindness. On fundus ex uh, examination of the eye, there were dense yellowish-white areas of atrophy, and each fovea of the individual was diagnosed with juvenile macular degeneration. In 1971, another examination recorded her uncorrected VA as finger counting on the right hand had motion on the left. She was diagnosed with macular degeneration and declared legally blind in 1972, having been blind for 12 years. Right, So this is a long, ongoing thing. 12 years of blindness the and multiple checks over the years. The individual reportedly regained her instant vision instantaneously after receiving proximal intercessory prayers. This is just meaning that someone comes up, touches her, and prays over her. Subsequent medical records document repeated substantial improvement, including uncorrected VA of 2100 in each eye in 1974, and corrected VAs of 2030 and 2040 were recorded from 2001 to 2017. To date, her eyesight has remained intact for 47 years. So here we, we, we know how eyes work. We know how macular degeneration works. We know all these sort of things. We know what normally happens. And when people are blind, they stay blind. And here this person had been declared legally blind for 12 years, a long-term thing, has someone pray over her. And it says here, instantaneously regains her sight really quickly up to 2100. And then over the next year or so, I think it says here, uh, then it gets better to where it becomes good vision and has now kept that good eyesight for 47 years. Here's one other one. Again, these are just two. Also National Library of Medicine, PubMed, also uh, on <clears throat> here on, uh, on um, Science Direct. Uh, but I'll look at it from this site. Case report of gastroparesis healing 16 years of a chronic syndrome resolved after, after proximal intercessory prayer. Let me just read this one here to you really quickly. Here's the abstract. A male infant at two weeks of age was hospitalized vomiting forcefully. He had whatever the word is. <laughs> he did not improve with medical therapy. So they tried medical intervention and he did not improve. The diagnosis of gastroparesis was made after a nuclear medicine gastric emptying study and intestinal manometry. <laughs> he required a gastronomy tube or a G-tube and a J-tube for feeding. At 11 months of age, the J-tube was converted into a feeding, whatever that word is, with RUXNY limb. For 16 years then. Okay, so this started when he was two weeks old. He gets a new feeding tube at 11 months of age. For the next 16 years, this person 
was completely dependent on the J-tube for feeding. In November of 2011, so this is now much more recently, he experienced proximal intercessory prayer at church and felt an electric shock starting from his shoulder going through his stomach. After the prayer experience, he was unexpectedly able to tolerate oral feeding. So rather than projectile vomiting, which is what started happening at at two weeks old, um, when he ate something orally, he after that prayer, felt this shock and tried eating something orally and was able to tolerate it. The J-tube and the G-tube were removed four months later. He did not require any further special treatments for his condition and all symptoms have been resolved. Over seven years later, he has also been symptoms-free. So this, again, is not just like a week later and he's back on it. Seven years later, symptoms-free. The article investigates a case of uh, the... um, Proximal intercessory prayer as an alternative intervention for resolving severe uh, idiopathic gastroparesis with maximal medical management is not effective. Now, if you go to the Science Direct for both of these cases, um, it will go over all of a lot more detail with you, giving not only the abstract, but the introductions. It shows you uh, here's how J tubes and G tubes get connected into your intestines. Um, and here's uh, presenting concerns. Here's a timeline of the things that took place. Uh, here's all the different checks and the things that doctors prescribed and did. 16 years later, no changes. All medical intervention didn't help. And then all of a sudden he gets prayed for and it's it's better, miraculously better. Uh, they have timelines. They have a whole bunch of different stuff. Now, again, if I, I've, I've listened to enough YouTube shows where, where there's a Christian and atheist debating this and these sort of examples are reported. There's one more here. I thought this one was really interesting. I think I first heard this on, um, on the unbelievable show with Justin Brierley. Um, but this is a story of where this guy, Dr. Sean George was dead for an hour and 25 minutes and came back to life after his wife prayed a simple prayer. And, um, on the website, you can go to his, uh, there's a medical history where he legit has, um, nope, not there, not medical story, timeline of events. Yeah, here in his timeline of events, he has um, printouts. So here's one, the first EKG showing heart attack in the inferior wall of his heart. And then there's a medical reading there of the EKG. Um, and there's others. Here's the first shock. It reports all the different shocks that he went through. And what's crazy about this story, and I, I've heard it a long time ago, um, but he has all this documentation of all these different shocks that were ministered to where he was hooked up to a machine that said, um, uh, that said, he was dead and and it's administering shocks on his heart because the machine is reading no pulse. And this is for an hour and 25 and there's repeated shock one administered, shock two administered, shock three administered, and all these different shocks are getting administered because the machine is, is picking up nothing. There's doctors there at the hospital. He's at a medical clinic. He's not in like a home. He's not off in the woods. Uh, the doctors there are administering CPR. They're doing CPR. They're trying to revive him and nothing. And it was after an hour and 25 minutes of multiple doctors coming in, administering injections and, and all the different stuff that they try to do to, to get stuff started. His wife comes in and says, Lord, please don't let my husband die. And that instant, his heart kicks back to life. Now, from what I remember on his testimony, what he shared on the Unbelievable podcast, the doctors thought this was bad news because after an hour and 25 minutes of no blood flow, you should have brain dead. You you should have uh, uh, um, organ issues uh, because there's just been no blood flow during that time to, to keep life into these different um, organs and different tissues and different parts of the body. And so they said, look, he's just going to be in a vegetative state. It's unfortunate he came back to life. Now he's going to be a vegetable until we have to pull him 
often than he's going to die anyways. And uh, if I look here really quickly, um, it says after day three, the patient survived for 24 hours. And the photos indicate here, uh, if I, I can pull this back up if you're interested. Um, here we go. Uh, photo indicates uh, multiple pumps to support the blood pressure, uh, keep him in a coma. Um, day four, all of a sudden, uh, can I unzoom this a little bit? Um, oh. There we go. Day four, he starts moving his hands and legs. Uh, <clears throat> kidney failure, liver implant uh, impairment. Um, dialysis started for kidney failure. Uh, then his blood pressure gets better. Day six, they remove some different tubes. He starts breathing on his own. And day 13, he gets discharged from the hospital. Required total of six dialysis before kidney function, normalized completely, liver impairment, return to normal, everything returned to normal. So again, I think you can present these cases and you can say, wow, he got really lucky. Uh, we just don't understand this. Or you can say, look, we know how the human body functions. We've been studying the human body for a very long time. There's never a case in which someone's dead for an hour, 25 and no blood flow and then regains this. Like, and at this point, if, if a person says, look, I, I still don't believe it. Um, there's probably a natural explanation. Then the question I think is legitimate to say, how much evidence could I present? How crazy could something be? How unlikely, how, how much, how many fingerprints of some inter external intelligent agent can I present to show, to convince you that this is actually evidence pointing to something outside our universe that came in and overpowered the physical normal things of how things function versus there must be a natural explanation. And I've had some people at this point say nothing. There's nothing that you will ever be able to present to me that I want to say, well, we just don't understand it yet. And that's where I just think we have to recognize our worldview commitments. And Christians are the same way. It's like sometimes we just get, and Christians, we have to understand this because this is true of ourselves. Like what could someone present to me to convince me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or, or things like that? Man, I, I don't know. Like it, the bones of Jesus, but I know you can't just go find those. Like sometimes we are so committed to something that it becomes almost impossible to talk us out of. We understand that for ourselves. We need to give some grace to others who are maybe in that same place. And we need to approach this, I think, from that worldview kind of commitment versus I think if we are a little bit, personally, obviously I have my bias, but personally, I think if we're a little bit more open, there are certain cases like this, or there are certain cases like I presented there or certain cases like in here in this book that I talked about earlier, that's like, look, because of everything we know. It's not just, I don't know, therefore God. It's because of everything we know that it points to there being something external, right? So just like, um, just like I think if we know that you hit water, you sink. To where if all of a sudden I told you my son was walking on water, you go, that's either not possible or if he was, you know that because that is not just unlikely but impossible, you know that there's something external helping him help on water, like me holding his arms <laughs> to where his feet barely touch the top of the water. Right. Uh, and that's a silly little trick, but it's the fact that, you know, it's not just unlikely, but it is impossible to walk on water that if you witness a reliable case of someone doing it, there has to be some external force with enough power to cause that thing to take place. And I think Personally, I think some of these examples are that based on how we know the functions of the human body, based on how we know uh, about what we know about the world. It's not that we're just these clueless individuals, uh, but based on what we know, it's not just unlikely, but this is impossible. 
Is this not evidence then for there being some sort of divine being that has the power to intervene to do these things? Again, if God doesn't exist, it's not possible and it won't happen. But if God does exist, it at least becomes possible. And if we allow for the possibility of God to exist, then this can be used as evidence that points to him, especially when there is this intercessory prayer that takes place at that moment where they pray and then it happens. Um, I think that personally can be used. Maybe you disagree. I don't know. I'd be curious what you think, but I think that can be used then to point towards the existence of God. So I think I see one more uh, comment that came in here in the live chat and I don't see anything there on Instagram. So if you uh, have anything, uh, now's your last moment to put it in, but I will address this and then um, we'll be finishing up. But Yuma, thanks for commenting in here. You said, one thing I think is a fair question is, does the kind of proximal intercessory prayer work consistently or are there only sporadic cases? Or is the argument that God chooses who to heal? This is good. Um, God does not always choose to heal, right? And we are, are, as Christians are called to pray, we're called uh, told to ask, but we also recognize that it's, it's God's will that is done. Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done uh, as, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. And we, our goal in prayer should be to align our desires and our will with the will of God. And so I think this functions just like a child and a parent where my two-year-old <laughs> is wanting snacks. He wants chocolate. He wants something. And me, uh, I am going to grant his request sometimes and other times I'm not uh, because I know what's better for him than what he knows for himself. And so if I, as a good father, hopefully, uh, know when to answer my son and give him what he wants, and I also know when to say, no, I'm not giving that to you, then the question is, is it possible for God to also do that same thing where we're praying for some sort of miracle to take place, but actually for whatever reason beyond our understanding, just like my two-year-old can't understand why he can't have chocolate at that moment, um, we go, I don't understand why God isn't doing this. Because sometimes it's like, I'm, I'm praying for something good. Why wouldn't he do it? I don't know, but if he's not, there must be a reason. Again, this is, it goes back to what I've been talking about this whole show. That's where my theological commitments to God is a good God. And he answers and responds in ways that are good to where, when I don't understand something I fall back on, but God knows. And I trust him because of a theological view that I have, right? This is how we have our prior beliefs that shape how we view things that come up in the future. We all do this and I do it. Um, and so <clears throat> we're called to pray for people. We're called to pray for healing. Um, and God heals, I think at times and other times I don't think he does. Um, but I don't think the times that he doesn't is evidence that he doesn't exist. Just like when I don't answer my kids request, it's not evidence against my existence. Um, it's just showing that I am saying no at that time for whatever reason. Um, and so here's the, the, the thought is, is what is the knowledge gap between me and my two-year-old son? <laughs> and if there's things that he's not aware of, and I'm saying no or yes for a reason that he doesn't get, um, if that can make sense in our minds, what's the knowledge gap between us and God? Between us as limited, finite human beings and God as an infinite being. Is it possible that that same thing is true where he goes, you don't get it and you maybe never will? Now, I think there's times, and I mean, I can't think of any off the top of my head in the moment, but I know people who are listening maybe can of when you pray for something, God does not answer it. And then later on, you're thankful for it. 
Maybe it's like the common example is like you pray that I really want to marry this girl. God, please let me marry her. And then you break up and you're like, why God, I wouldn't marry her. And then five years later, you meet your wife or whatever. And you're like, wow, I'm so lucky God didn't answer that prayer. I did not know what was best for me when I was in high school or college or whatever. Right. Sometimes we can see in the future. Oh, my goodness. How lucky. I'm so happy that God didn't answer that prayer. Other times we maybe don't find an answer. Maybe we won't until we get to heaven. Um, but I, I think that doesn't change the fact that we are commanded to pray. We're called to pray. We're said to pray for people, to anoint them, to, to lay our hands on them, to pray for them and say, God, your will be done. This is how Jesus prayed in the garden. God, take this cup from me, but ultimately your will be done, not mine. Um, and I think that's how we need to approach prayer. I, I, I have a great interview. If you're interested on YouTube, uh, search um, where prayer becomes real. As an interview I did with Kyle Strobel. One thing that stands out, and I'll finish with this. One thing that stands out from that conversation is <clears throat> I asked him, uh, well, the Bible says, you know, ask whatever you want and, and it will be done. Uh, so what if I want a million dollars? Should I pray for that? And he said, yeah, you should. If that's what's on your mind, if that's what you want, pray for it. But then take the time and ask God in reflection, God, why do I want this? What do I think the million dollars is going to do for me? What ways am I maybe not trusting you that I think the million dollars is going to provide security rather than trusting you in my security and my provision? Um, we need to allow prayer. We want to present our request to God. We're called to. But then we should also allow our prayer to be introspective where we draw back on ourselves to say, hey, why do I want this? And then ultimately say, God, it's your will be done, not mine. And I think that's a healthy approach to prayer. I think that's a biblical approach. And again, there's a great conversation with Kyle Strobel where prayer becomes real. I'll make it pop up here in the corner. Uh, probably did pop up a little bit ago uh, as I started talking about this. So anyways, um, yeah, I mean, I thought this was a fascinating chapter. Um, and again, I think we just need to be careful. And here's the takeaway. We need to be careful not to only look at evidence that confirms our views, dismiss things that goes against our views. We also need to be aware of how our worldview is shaping how we see and experience new information, where it's not just we believe in creation, therefore not, it doesn't matter what you present as far as evolution, it's just wrong, period. Um, and be willing to consider these different arguments and pieces of evidence and then actually dismiss it for good reason rather than just dismissing it because it goes against what I believe. But the fact that there's different evidences and the fact that we are skeptical of some things because of other things is actually evidence that there's knowledge, that there's things that I know or things that I believe or things that I'm convicted of and convinced of that is causing me to look at these different things differently. And I think when we're aware of that, then we can approach people in conversations with a little bit more humility, a little bit more grace, a little bit more care and compassion as we realize why they are being dismissive of the things that we're claiming, um, rather than just saying, ah, oh, you're crazy. How can you not see this? Well, here's why you can't see it, because you're convinced that God doesn't exist. Therefore, miracles are not possible. Therefore, there's nothing you can present to me that would make me believe in a miracle. Maybe we need to realize that, take a step back, and let's talk about the existence of God a little bit. Maybe use a different line of reasoning, a different argument for God rather than miracles. And then once they start to become open to the existence of a miracle or open to the existence of God, then maybe we can come back to using miracles as also a piece of the puzzle that points to him. So hopefully this is interesting. Hopefully you're liking this series. Um, again, there's 20 chapters of this book. If that's way too much, uh, maybe we'll cut some out and I'll maybe post, uh, which one do you want to uh, see a video on? Uh, but I think that each chapter kind of presents some different piece of information, a different strategy, something different to consider that that is helpful. And so it's providing something fun. Um, um, 
So anyways, I'm also going to be working in interviews uh, along uh, the way uh, that will be posted on, on YouTube and, and Facebook um, with different authors and scholars. Um, so kind of doing my normal interviews that I do, but this is kind of something fun that kind of do on the site as well, as well as kind of uh, address something and then open up to questions and comments from you all. So uh, with that, Phantom X, glad you're enjoying it. Uh, then I'll keep going. Uh, but at least, uh, hey, next week, uh, let me tell you, what is next week? Uh, next week, if I'm around and everything works out, uh, chapter four is <clears throat> morality. Oh, I love this topic. Morality stems from God. Without God, we could not be good people. That is chapter four. And again, if you want to go get this book, uh, let me put it on the screen again. It is right there. Why There Is No God, 20 Simple Responses to 20 Common Arguments for the Existence of God by Armin Navabi, the uh, founder of Atheist Republic. Uh, it's When I bought it, it was like 2 or $3 on Kindle, so you can get it for cheap and you can follow along next week. We'll be talking about chapter four. So with that... Um, Thank you, Carla. Uh, appreciate you being here. So glad you enjoy it. And uh, hey, help spread the word. I saw someone talking about uh, giving more likes. Hey, I appreciate that. If you're listening to a podcast, give a rating review. Help the algorithm spread it to more people. If you're watching on Instagram, share this in your stories. If you're watching on YouTube, share it with friends or like it. I don't know. But hey, uh, if you enjoy it, Look, I just, I just, I, 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 I want this to be a blessing to people. And if it's been a blessing to you, maybe it will to others as well. Uh, not saying all that because I need to grow big. No, but just, Hey, if it's been good, uh, I want it to be a blessing to people. And so whoever gets it and can be blessed by it is such an encouragement. And so I'm just, I'm happy that I can be here, that I can join you guys. And I, uh, I'm grateful that you are, are benefiting from it. So thank you. Um, again, ton of other content will pop up over here on YouTube, uh, that you can check uh, as you continue to think well about the Christian faith, trying to think through these different things of arguments for and against God and Christianity. And then how do we faithfully live this out in culture and deal with these different big issues that come up? So, a uh, lot of other stuff to help train you to think about all these different areas. And until next time, continue to think uh, deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. See everybody. See you next time. Bye. I just ask you to leave. Won't hesitate to follow. Your love will guide.